Hello and welcome to a football podcast episode two with myself Christian Jack and Stephen Caldwell. Today we are going to talk about Arsenal Chelsea, Victor Vazquez, contract talks with Sebastian Javinko and Josie Altador and we sit down with TFC boss Greg Vanny. It is a pretty centric TFC episode. It is basically our TFC preview episode and don't worry Whitecaps fans don't worry Montreal fans we're going to get to you and many other clubs before the start of the MLS season but it has been a big news in Toronto FC land this week so we've got to cover that and it's great to be back with you again pal great to see you again Christian it's a pleasure to be here for our second episode and the first episode was uh, universally beloved I think which yeah. was nice so thank you for everybody for all the messages which certainly meant certainly meant a lot to us yeah I appreciated the support we we love doing it and we're looking forward to really getting into it every single week but again thanks for the support all through the platforms we really really appreciate it we certainly do and remember to continue to rate and review we really appreciate that as well and of course the feedback has been great and we love the interaction we're going to get to some of your stuff later in the show and remember hashtag ask AFP I have been on assignment a lot this weekend um, including obviously interviewing a lot of players in MLS this week in, in Los Angeles and we're going to have a lot of stories about that over the next few episodes as well so that's good So, but I am going to leave the match report stuff and the match review stuff to you guys because when I didn't see it, I don't really want to comment on it. So I'll throw that over to you and our esteemed producer, Mr. Sean Kay. Thanks, KJ. Quite a weekend in the Premier League, eh? Yeah, big weekend. A lot of goals uh, in the Premier League and a lot of interesting games. Games that looked like they were you know, going to be easy to predict and then they were not quite went that way. And exciting action all round. Uh, let's start with our appetizer with Liverpool and Palace. Three goals. Three goals for Palace. At the start of the game, you didn't really expect it. It looked like 11 behind the ball and Liverpool trying to break through. But that once that goal from Palace, it sort of opened up the game. Yeah, it was a, an interesting game. I thought it was the first time in a number of months we saw Liverpool a little bit flat from the start, Sean. They, they looked like you know they were devoid of ideas, devoid of any kind of real uh, rhythm to their attacks or, or real impetus to the attacks and, and Palace were in a lovely defensive position they looked pretty comfortable and then obviously when Townsend scored it kind of woke them up a little bit didn't it you know it woke the crowd up too and made everybody realise that you know after Palace's exploits against Manchester City at the Etihad recently and, and obviously the last team to beat Liverpool in the, in the league in April 2017 everyone's thinking, oh, here we go. Is there going to be another real shock on the cards here? So it then just sort of made the game away more interesting. The goal started coming in, but Palace were always in it. They were defending really well. Loved their shape. Thought Roy Hodgson had them set up brilliantly. Yeah, to speak about Roy, um, do you think he looked at the uh, the starting 11 and when saw Milner out on the, on the wing, he sort of salivated and said, Saha, go out and get him? Yeah, it looked like that, didn't it? Whenever he was isolated with James Milner, Zaha, you know, using that trickery of his, took him down the line more often than not. I liked that. I thought Milner was, you know, hoping to push him inside into the bodies, but Zaha was having none of it. And he is very two-footed. He kept taking him down the line. The first goal came from that was Zaha, the little cut back to Andros Townsend and a brilliant finish from him. And there was a few other instances that as soon as he moved it out of his feet, Milner had, had, had didn't have the pace or the legs anymore to stay with them. It gets me to the point, you know, they need Trent Alexander-Arnold back really, really quickly. James Milner's a terrific player, but... To be isolated 1v1s against the quality of a Zaha is not his game anymore. Uh, why did they let Nathaniel Klein go and loan to Bournemouth? That was just maybe the worst decision Jurgen Klopp's made this season. There was no point to that, in my opinion. They should have kept him there for the cover, even if and when Gomez comes back. I don't love him in the right-back area also, so maybe that was a bit of a misstep from Klopp and he'll be wanting Alexander Arnold back really, really quickly. Um, but yeah, that, that was the, the, the key to the match was... 
how often could Palace get the ball on the counter attack to, to Zaha to cause some damage? Uh, Milner going off in, in you know the latter stages with a red card was testament to how difficult his afternoon was. So before this match, uh, Liverpool had only given up ten goals in the entire league, and then in this game, let's three in. Uh, is this a one-off for Liverpool based on injuries, etc., or did Roy sort of show the league this is sort of how you counterattack Liverpool and and, and almost get a result. Obviously, Liverpool won in the end, but still, three past Liverpool is, is very impressive. Very impressive and, and very frustrating for Roy Hodgson, I'm sure, that you know you go to Anfield, you score three goals and you get nothing from the game. So you'll be, you'll be mad at that. Um, great question. I don't really think that Palace showed teams how, how vulnerable Liverpool can be. I think they had an off day. Uh, the first goal was terrific. I loved how... MacArthur looked like he was in a bit of a spot then he found a wonderful outlet pass to Van Aanholt on the left hand side and it really took four or five Liverpool players out of the game and then of course getting the ball to Zaha was crucial to, to the resulting goal and, and the 1v1 with Milner but that was clever if, if teams are brave enough to sort of suck Liverpool in and allow them to feel like they can maybe nick the ball once they break that press it looked a little bit like Liverpool of old didn't it where you can get in behind their midfield and their forward line and then get right on their back four uh, but Probably Jurgen Klopp learnt more from that than, than maybe any opposing team. Um, it was an off day. The, the goal, yeah. the header goal from Tompkins, good from Palace's point of view, but shocking goal for a top side to lose. A little bit of a, a nice little block there. I think it was Ayu on, on Virgil van Dijk that really just kind of got him rooted. Normally van Dijk eats up every ball that comes into the box. Nice little block there. And, and then Tompkins put it in the back end eight. And the third goal was in the dying stages. Yeah. It was a sloppy goal to lose. But uh, that one first goal is interesting. That to me is a key. The bravery to play out of that press takes takes incredible yeah. quality, uh, you know. And if you do it consistently, are they going to catch you and then score a goal of their own? So uh, that's not an easy thing to do. But in, in that instance, I thought Palace did it perfectly well. Uh, we also saw uh, Naby Keita get back in the squad for Liverpool. Yeah, um, he had a bit of a, a an interesting game. There were some times where he looked really, really nice on the ball, made some nice one twos, but he also didn't fully gel with the, the Liverpool squad. What do you what do you take from this match for Keita? Do you see a long-term future for him at this club? I see a long-term future from him. I still think he's a, a quality player, but I don't think he's in their best 11 just now, and that was clear to see. And uh, He looked a little bit rusty, didn't he? You know, he just didn't quite have the, the, the um, cohesion or the midfield didn't have the cohesion that we've expected in recent weeks. I thought it was... Lacking a bit of creativity, Shakiri was missing in there. Um, maybe lost a little bit in industry, but uh, just an off game for them. I, you know, I don't want to criticise one player like Keita or, or anybody else. Fabinho wasn't on his usual game as well, and he's been brilliant in recent weeks and months. Um, just wasn't the game for him. But it's clear to me that they need some creativity in that midfield to to really play at home most Premier League games and Shakiri's providing that just now he's, he's improved his game so much not just on the ball we always expect something brilliant from that left foot of his but now you can trust him in a midfield role and I, I think as we look forward especially at home especially against teams outside the top six Shakiri will be in the team more often than not Perfect. Uh, let's move to the uh, the main course. This one this one was a, a heck of a game to watch. Obviously, if you were an Arsenal fan, uh, maybe not if you were a Chelsea fan. 
Um, Arsenal put in a strong performance against a woeful Chelsea. Yes. Uh, I'm quoting a Stephen Caldwell tweet <laughs> right now. Uh, it was at halftime, but still, I will still hold you to it. Yep. Um, what did you think overall about the match? Overall, one team wanted it more. That was clear uh, to see Arsenal right from the very start. I thought they did something quite interesting tactically that we've not really seen from Unai Emery's side where it was more of a 4-4-2 diamond. Uh, you know, they, they asked Herrera to play predominantly on the right. Gunduzi was predominantly on the left. Xhaka held that uh, that central defensive position in midfield. And Ramsey went on his Roman runs to, to provide support to a more central Aubameyang and Lacazette. And I think it's important to recognise that, that these two guys really seem to have a, a personal relationship, don't they? They seem to have you know, a, a real like for each other. One of them at different times has been asked to play in a wide area because Emery normally likes you know, a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1 formation. We did that without any moaning and, and unselfish play from them. But when we see them get central, they look really dynamic. I, I think that was uh, the best performance as a kind of tandem that I've seen from them. And, and credit to Emery for finding a way to allow them to play together and let's keep an eye on that to see how often he can he can do that in the future maybe ideally that's going to be in a 3-5-2 a I, I think possibly once he gets the right personnel in the defensive areas I think he might go to that he's flirted with that this season but he doesn't really have the players to play at the moment so he's, he went back to a more solid four at the back at times but uh, a, a brilliant tandem from there to uh, Lacazette's first goal was, or the first goal of the match his only goal was, was absolutely brilliant he took it so well, it was a, a fizzed in cross, four tremendous touches. The first one to control it, two brilliant touches with his left foot. Any kid watching, just the first left foot touch to take it away from the defender, then that critical second left foot touch to allow himself the space. Um, I think it was my boys, Will and Robbie, that reminded me he's probably the best near post finisher in, in world football, isn't he? He just he, he hits that one so hard and, and, and so true in at the near post, even a, pe uh, a goalkeeper, sorry, of. Kepa Arazabalaga's quality cannot get anywhere near it and he blasts into net a great goal exactly what they deserved uh, a Chelsea side with no ideas no cohesion to their attacks no identity to anything that they were doing don't think they were that bad defensively but when they were on the ball Arsenal were just very comfortable and confident to allow them to have it. Pedro having the only real chance. I know Alonso hit the post from a corner, slack marking from Arsenal, but Pedro was the only time they got in behind Arsenal with any great quality and he maybe should have put it in the back of the net, but disappointing from them, especially in the first half. Yeah, to go back on the Lacazette and uh, Boumiang, they have 22 goals combined through the Premier League this year. Um, and originally when I first saw the goal, I thought the keeper... Might have, should have done better, especially yeah. on the short side. But because he hit it so hard, I was like, okay, no, maybe not. Uh, but what are your thoughts on David Luiz on that? Do you think he was the touch just so nice that he probably wasn't going to be able to get as tight as he wanted to? Or do you think he was a little too relaxed on that situation? Uh, a little too relaxed. It's, it's often something we, we say with his defending, isn't it? He's just a bit too, too lax. And it's such a shame because... I can't think of a better player on the ball as a centre half. He's absolutely tremendous. He's his playmaking ability from that position. He was the one that set up Pedro's opportunity with a brilliant ball. We spoke about him last week against Newcastle with four, five, six raking crossfield balls, left or right foot, steps into the play. But defensively, it's like he can't be bothered. It's like he, it, it's secondary. And to me, 
as much as football is now about bringing it out from the back, it still has to be the primary concern of any defender to stop the ball going in your net. And I, I don't think Luis puts enough importance on that, uh, not taking anything away from Lacazette, but should have did a little bit better. Um, the marking for uh, for Koscielny's goal also was awful from Chelsea as a team. They had had a warning earlier where Kepa made a great save from Koscielny when he, when he got the header on it. You know, you're squeezing up like that, Sean, when the ball goes back and you squeeze up, you've got to pick up bodies or you've got to get your arm out to make sure that there's no runs coming in between the lines and they didn't do that well at all. They just squeezed up, you know, as individuals. Uh, the line was pretty solid in terms of, you know, in line with each other, but allowing three or four Arsenal shirts to just run in between them is not good enough and Koscielny was fortunate with the finish but he deserved that fortune because he was there all alone and uh, an awful display from Chelsea. So do you think this is something that was tactical and was there tactical mismanagement or are you uh, going the same route as Sari as Sari said in his press conference where the team uh, had a mental breakdown, lacked determination and this team is very difficult to motivate. And he also believes that the it was motivation over tactics. Do you think that it was a motivation thing or was there tactics involved that sort of allowed this team to to lose the game to now? Uh, there's always tactics involved, but any game, any level in the world, first and foremost, you have to win personal battles. You have to be ready for what's to come. Start the game positively. Do what you're good at, whatever that is. Win a header, run in a channel, hold the ball up. Uh, you know, make a save, come for a cross, whatever your position is. You set a tone to a performance by how you attack the game and that happens at every level of football. I've heard managers say it, I've been part of performances, teams that are good and bad at that. So I completely agree with Sari. His side were not ready for the, the mental challenge of playing Arsenal at the Emirates. Arsenal were, they came out with a, a fervour, uh, you know, an aggression to the attacks and their play. They won the right to, to play football. It's amazing, but when you go out with that mindset, you actually pass the ball better. The tactics come together because you have that mindset. So um, I agree with them. I don't think they, they, they had the the, uh, the right mindset heading into the game. I don't think they were ready for the match. I thought that, um, like I said earlier, the Arsenal sort of diamond midfield was was causing them trouble. I think they, they didn't expect the front two of Lacazette and Aubameyang to be as central as they were. And uh, Again, good tactical decision from Emery, understanding that Rudiger and Luis can be a little bit slack at times. You know, Alonso loves to get forward. Um, he leaves spaces in that channel where Luis is, is, is not so keen to kind of run into and it's kind of, I know it came from a, a wide cross, but it's sort of that channel where the, the Lacazette goal came from. So uh, I, I think that um, before you even go into tactics in any game, you need to be mentally ready for it. And at that level of football, with the quality that they guys have, it's uh, unforgivable not to be prepared and ready for the challenge. So, so many times I've heard um, through interviews that the coach, the players, everyone thinks should keep between the four walls. And when a coach or a player leaves those four walls and goes publicly with the thing, how does that change the team mentality? How does it change the trust? Is it something that you can only do once or twice? And has he, has he pulled the pin too early? What are your thoughts? Uh, I loved it. I think Sarri's a man that doesn't take any prisoners. He's a, he's a guy that I respect. He, he looks like a guy that I'd love to have played for. I wish I had the opportunity to play under him. Um, he's a man, isn't he? He doesn't mess around. He just tells people how it is. So I, I'm 
99% certain I wasn't in that changing room that he told them the exact same things as he told the press and the world immediately after not good enough look in a mirror all the things we've heard a lot of times uh, the men in the dress room go home and look in a mirror and think was I good enough did I give my best the other ones the ones that he can't trust probably blame the manager or want to moan about it or blame a, a fellow teammate and the other ones that he wants out of his football club that's the reason for that uh, very public uh, scalding that he gave the side so I've got no problem with that. I love the way he went about it as well, you know, saying it in Italian. It sort of had more <laughs> more weight and meaning to it, didn't it? The way that he, you know, he sort of said his, his brilliant little eloquent 20 seconds in English and then just went into this tirade in, in Italian. Um, and I love it. And I think that Sari's a guy who is adamant in the way that he wants to play. He will not accept... Uh, any compromise in that, I love that. The best managers in the world are all like that. Um, and at the moment, he probably doesn't have the personality or the quality of player that he would like to play that style. But for the long-term future of himself and Chelsea Football Club, he has to stick to that. He has to stay to his beliefs, the way that he wants football to play be played. He loves 4-3-3. Everybody, including me, is calling for him to play Kante and Jorginho in that central area, but he, he won't waver from that. That's not how he plays. And uh, a bit of a message to the board to probably say, help me find the players that can allow me to play the way that I want to play. I want players who are men. I want players who will stick to the technical and tactical beliefs that, that I have uh, you know, used throughout my entire career. Who's the leader in that locker room? Like, obviously on the armband, it's Cahill. But when you look at that Chelsea squad, it doesn't look like a group, a, a team that's going to fight for each other. It just looks like 11 individuals. Who is the leader on that team? Great question. Um, you know, who... Who stands up when things are tough? I, I don't see Luis as a leader, but I don't think he's a natural fit for that that area, that position. Um, Hazard essentially is the man of the team, but uh, he's wore the armband for Belgium, isn't he? Probably sometimes for Chelsea, but he's not a leader. Uh, Jorginho looks like he's really struggling to come to terms with English football at the moment. He looked dejected on, on Saturday afternoon. I thought that... He, he was just, he couldn't get any space. Ramsey was on top of him every time. Teams have worked him out and he, he can't find a way to kind of get on the ball or to be effective for his side. Uh, Pedro has experience, but he's never been a leader. Uh, could go on and on. Eh? As Plaqueta, I think he was wearing the armband, but I don't look at him and, and I, I see a quality player. I see a guy who, who does his job, but I don't see someone who can rally the troops. I don't see a... a a John Terry who can stand up there, Sean, and say, after five or ten minutes, wait a sec, what is going on here? Call a few people out, tuck a few guys in, get back into a bit of an identity, a bit of a shape, and then build from there. That's what you have to do. Not every game is pretty, not every game goes well. You need a guy to say, right, I'm going to change this on the park for the manager. I'm going to bring guys in, I'm going to make things a little bit tighter, I'm going to call a couple of people out, we're going to start from the basics, we're going to find a foothold in this game, and then we're going to expand from there. And, and nobody really did that on Saturday. And the game was over by half time, and Arsenal just sat in in the second half, allowed Chelsea to have the ball, but... They had won the mental battle by that point. Yeah, they don't look like the champions that they were two years ago. So No, and we keep seeing a champion team then just kind of down tools and, and, and you know, stop performing for their manager. And, and that's 
why we go there immediately because history tells us that that group of players have done that the bulk of that group of players and Jorginho wasn't there and Kovacic wasn't there but the bulk of that group have been there uh, and you know they go from the the highs of winning a Premier League which (laughs) is not an easy thing to do you have to be of a certain level mentally and technically to get anywhere near that and then to drop to some of the lows that we've seen from, from their players is unacceptable and it's happened through this will be the third manager that we seem to see the same characteristics coming from so good on Sari for calling them out now it's up to the ownership the the, the leadership the, the board of directors at Chelsea Football Club to stick by Sari, get him who he wants get the guys out that he feels are a bad influence within the squad and allow him to build a team give him some time to build the right kind of characters that he wants at the football club and now moving forward last week uh We'll just throw a little bit of dessert before we uh, we wrap this up. But uh, last week you proclaimed uh, your hipster team uh, Wolves, yes. and uh, good God, did they perform? <laughs> yeah, on the offense this weekend. Uh, just give us a little bit of a, a taste on what you thought of the Wolves Leicester match. Exciting match. I thought it was um, uncharacteristic of a, a Premier League game. It was very stretched, um, f- way too stretched for Leicester and Claude Poel's point of view, I'm sure. But uh, an entertaining game. Some good performances all round. I thought that obviously Jota with a hat trick was was tremendous. Played really well. Put the ball away when he gets into the position. He normally has composure in his finish. And um, I, I thought that credit to Wolves for you know never giving up after being in a two 0 lead at home. Once you, you you've drawn back to two two, it's easy to panic and become anxious. Um, another sign that Nuno Santo just has these players playing the way that he wants them he's given them confidence he's given them belief to go out there and do their job so great character to, to you know to come back 3-2 3-3 and then still to win the game it, it sounds like it's an easy thing to do at home but it's not like I promise you you, you get very anxious when you, you know you've let a two goal lead at home slip but they, they never uh, let themselves get too down about that uh, from Leicester's point of view <laughs> at the end sorry for laughing but I, I just felt <laughs> for Claude Puel I saw a man that just wanted to put his head through a window I thought <laughs> I, who would be a manager the dejection on his face he's, he went into Molyneux his team scored three goals I've came back from two down three two down and they're going to pick up a very good point they showed glimpses of really great football at times and that fourth goal was just awful wasn't it Johnny Evans who came on some stoop left his leg dangling I I thought that was poor defending from Johnny we we normally expect better than that and then you know the the, the giveaway that put them in that predicament Jota was in an offside position but the second phase allowed them to be a good five six yards ahead of uh, Wes Morgan and Oh, the guy was just dejecting and see why. There's something not quite right there. Uh, we know, we hear so often that Puel doesn't uh, have the confidence of the players and I feel like that might be the case. I, I hate to say it, we see, we see them fight back and then we think, oh, well, okay, you know, these guys are still fighting, but with the quality that they have, they probably should be a little better than they're doing right now. So let's keep an eye on that one. I'm, I'm not sure that Puel's going to last the season. Crazy. Yeah. If you are a defender on a team that just won 4-3 and you let up three goals, are you still going in the locker room with a smile on your face or are you kicking yourself? Um, I think three points is is the most important thing, yeah. uh, especially 
after a game. I think I would focus on the positives. Uh, I, I think the Connor Cody, one of my favourite players this season, maybe at fault. You know, I know it was a deflection, but you know he deflected one of the goals into the back of the net, and then his his defence was a little bit disjointed. But he's been a great leader for that team, and I think he probably goes in. I would go to the positives first. I would say, great, we came back, we showed spirit, we kept going, we win the three points. But then once you get home for the weekend, you come in on the Monday or the Tuesday morning, you say, look, there was a couple of areas where we were kind of disjointed and, and pulled apart a little bit. So I think they'll be working on that this week. Um, they're a great team to watch, Wolves. We've got so many exciting players. Jota with a hat-trick. Uh, Costa's been brilliant for him. He's been kind of in and out. Traore has pace. He's, he can be exciting at times. Jimenez has been great up top with the work rate. Matinho's playing in a more advanced position now. Uh, set up that, that first Jota goal and indeed the, the second goal from Bennett with a corner kick. And He's been a, a brilliant addition through his experience and his quality. Neves is in it. <laughs> One of the best young players in Europe. Uh, been great for them. Could go on and on. Nuno Santos got something really good going there. And if I'm a Wills fan, I just hope that they, they, they keep their players and they build on it rather than you know having to sell two or three of them and losing two or three of them in the summer. Of course. Uh, all we know is that this was a, this was a hell of a weekend. Great weekend. It was uh, it was a joy to watch, and I'm, yeah. I, I'm hoping that uh, KJ has to work a few more weekends so I can <laughs> keep my eye on it and keep the wife at bay. Great. Uh, but yeah, that's the roundup from this weekend. Good stuff, fellas. A reminder to everybody out there for our episode three because next weekend is the FA Cup. There are some big games, but there are also some enormous games a couple of days later on the Tuesday of the Premier League. So we will be extending our deadline for the episode three to the Tuesday, I believe, uh, that week. So I think that's the. 29th Shawnee of, of January that time so episode 3 will be coming out on the Tuesday that week rather than the uh, the Monday so so we can get some real meat into some of the big Premier League stories as that, as that race continues uh, but that was fun uh, Shawnee over to you for headlines yep before we get into Toronto FC uh, let's hit some European headlines uh, Sven uh, Miss, Miss Lintat, uh sounds like he's on his way out of Arsenal after uh, falling out with uh, Emery um, we sort of touched about it last episode about the mismanagement of Rambo. Um, what's going on here, guys? What do you guys think? Is Arsenal a full-on mess? Yeah, a little bit of a mess. We were just talking off camera about our friend shout-out to Devang Desai, who, uh, <laughs> to be frank, could be having a heart attack and Falling a meltdown apart if Twitter. Arsenal was one point behind in the Premier League race right now. But they're not. This is uh, far from ideal because of the timing, Stephen, obviously yeah. around the transfer window. Mislintat was seen as one of those one of those new leaders of the football club, wasn't he, post-Wenger? Obviously, he was there while Wenger was there, but brought him from Dortmund, um, conducted a number of transfers. Maybe this is a power move for Emery, but I know on Twitter, where often you can just watch bonfires exist with Arsenal fans all over the world, this has not gone down well, and it's far from ideal at the moment. It's not ideal. Um, I think it's disappointing, disappointing to see a guy like Mislintat leave the football club so quickly into his tenure. He's, you know, a, a head of recruitment of quality, a director of football, technical director, whatever you want to call it. He's a guy with a, a past record and, and has proven he has the quality to do it. I think you hit the nail on the head there, KJ. This is a real, you know, uh, war between Emery and, and Mislintat, in my opinion. There's a difference of opinion on players. There's a difference of opinion on who is essentially in charge and what direction the football club should go. And so I think that 
that's the, the reason that Mislin Tat's going to be on his way out. He's decided enough's enough. He's maybe doesn't feel like he has enough power with the higher ups. Ral Sanlehi is obviously involved there big time at the football club and I feel like he's edged towards the Emery side of things. Yeah. There's a lot of rumours that Dennis Suarez coming in on, on loan from Barcelona with a view to maybe a £20 million move in the summer. Was the reason for that? Mislin Tat didn't feel he, he you know, was a player that would have really strengthened Arsenal but um, Emery, Unai Emery was, was very sure that he was so it's a shame. Uh, it's disappointing. Arsenal looked like they were getting things on track. They still need recruitment. They still need players. Ironically, this is the area that they look to be changing. But they were in the right direction with Emery after what was a long tenure of Arsene Wenger. And they had really sort of transitioned well. And I felt like the future was very bright. And this throws that up in the air a little bit. It certainly does for a number of factors because it is clear that Emery wants to spend money and isn't worried about telling you that he wants to spend money, which is very different, which we've often talked about on on the TV side of things, where Wenger was um, maybe a bone of contention for many Arsenal fans, but kept it in-house. Obviously, what was going on in the boardroom uh, uh, stayed in the boardroom when Wenger was there. I think there's a leader of the football club they could rely on Arsene Wenger for that, and that's, let's be frank, one of the many reasons why he stayed in the job. Not to discredit some of his performances, but they were nowhere near the level they should have been in the the latter years. But that, I I think, certainly appeased ownership at that point, and Emery's not necessarily doing that. He's challenging them in that. And um, the last few major decisions that they've made, we talked about Ramsey last week, the Ozil deal, the the Mkhitaryan swap from Sanchez. People would say that's not a bad swap to get a player of £50 million quality, I suppose, for something that you're going to get for nothing. But you can also turn that around and say, well, he's not been anywhere near good enough and you could have put that money somewhere else into the transfer fee and, 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 and wages of another player. So a lot of things to be concerned about, Sean, with that football club at the moment. And um, yeah, I guess it's one of those watch this space, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's that same thing that we always see in English football, isn't it, KG? We never really feel that there's a connection between the manager, the head coach and a director of football. It's, it's always been a problem. And you felt like with foreign guys at the helm that it would have been okay this time but it just shows you that it's all a, a difference of opinion football such a game of opinions that these two guys have clashed on a few players I think Mkhitaryan may be another example where you know there was a loyalty from Dortmund wasn't mm-hmm. there and Mislintat was sure to bring him in he's came in it's not really worked somehow Unai Emery's lost the trust in Mislintat there's been a little bit of a power struggle and a, a political battle there and it looks like Unai Emery's won that in the, in the short term with uh, with the board and the, the, the higher-ups. Um, moving on to Scotland, uh, Timothy Weah uh, signed on loan to Celtic, Jermaine Defoe signs on loan for 18 months to Rangers. How will both fare in the Scottish Premier League and who's going to score more? Wow, good question. I I, th- I think it's interesting that Celtic have gone younger and Rangers have gone older. Yeah. I mentioned that a little bit before the show in terms of what was going in that direction. Way is a very exciting prospect. Um, I would hope he will be given that opportunity to throw a player you know really well. We've I've covered him a lot, but you've played with him and you have to say that this is probably his last hurrah in terms of being playing in a major league in the European in Europe and 18 months left in his contract they've taken on that almost that, that final bill in terms of off Bournemouth wages where he was getting paid a lot of money he still believe I think that he could probably score at that level uh, I do KJ and I think that it's a football club that, that really suits Jermaine he, he likes to be at big clubs he likes mm. to be the main man I think he responds to that I think you know going on when he left Toronto FC and went back to Sunderland and 
really embraced what it meant to play for Sunderland. The fans loved him, and, and, and you can see from his performances, he gets a, a great deal of energy from that. Bournemouth was a club he played for earlier in his career, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out when he went back there. I think maybe the style of play didn't suit him. He then started to pick up some injuries again, which was disappointing for him. And He's on a vast sum of money, so he's going to have to score goals. He's going to have to prove Steven Gerrard's loyalty and, and faith in him really quickly because... They're in a fight for this title and whether you, you think it or not, they're there at the turn of the year and, and that's absolutely crucially important. I think the additions that they made in Davies, Stephen Davies and uh, the Northern Ireland International and Jermaine Defoe were really smart from Rangers. I think they're two players that can really get the football club quickly, can bring real value. And then on the other side of things, Celtic go young and exciting. But guys, it might need time. Yeah. So I think well, let's keep an eye on that. Timothy Weir obviously has a a very bright future in the game, but it's not easy to go to Scotland and, and get up and running really quickly. It's a physical league. He's going to have to adapt to that. He's probably not been used to that kind of football anywhere, at any part of his his growing up or or in his you know early professional career. So. I'm liking the Defoe one, I have to say. I, th I think that if he can stay fit, he will score goals for Rangers. I've always believed he'll score goals anywhere he would ever go, KJ. Yeah, you mentioned physically. The one thing I would say is that I don't think that he was trusted by Eddie Howe because what he has in King and Wilson is physicality. Yeah. And it'd be interesting to see. It, I mean, everywhere he's gone, we, we have this vision of Jermaine Defoe scoring goals. It's just what he does. But I think it might surprise him a little bit. You know better than most about what that league can be. He's not just going to be able to go up there and swan around like on a pension, is he? Because he has, he's barely played first-team football for a year and a half. Yeah, I, I just don't expect... Steven Gerrard to ask him to do the kind of role that Eddie Howe wants right. from his forwards. We we see Wilson and King every single week running channels and doing pretty much every part of the game. They're, they're such energy as strikers. I think it'll be a case, you stay up top, you get between the posts and you finish your chances. When Jermaine gets that scenario, he, he's a very good striker. Mm. He's not a guy that wants to run around. I'd even say, and no disrespect to him at Toronto FC, he didn't want to run around no. then and that was a good few years ago now. So, um, if you're asking for the wrong type of role from Jermaine, I don't think he's capable of doing that. He doesn't have the agility of earlier years. But if you tell him just to stay in the box, we'll get the ball to you. Don't worry about tracking back. Don't worry about running channels. We'll get other guys to do that. We've got other runners in the team. We just expect you to finish the chances. He'll do that. And I believe he'll do that till, till the day he retires. And so in that sense, I think Stevie will get him and, and we'll ask for the best out of him. Funny that we're moving from Defoe onto our TFC preview four years later. All comes uh, together. <laughs> um, obviously, this week, Victor Vasquez uh, leaves Toronto FC on transfer. Um, the sentiment on Twitter is fans are unhappy about this move, but this is good business, right? Um, yeah, I think from the club point of view, it, it it is good business. And Stevie maybe touched on that because I know that we did that for TSN this week. As a fan, I would be very disappointed. Um, because as a fan, one, you don't really care about business um, immediately because you can't, for example, know exactly right away what they're going to do with that money, you know, right away. So it's not like, okay, well, Victor Vazquez is gone. We've got 500000 on a transfer fee and we've now spent it on this guy and we're going to buy this guy to replace him. So, you, so the whole evolution of the entire process is not complete. So it's very difficult for a fan to evaluate that rationally anyway let alone fans evaluating anything rationally is very difficult so there you go you got two reasons why right away um and it was a bargain 
Victor Vasquez. So from a business point of view, everything that he said is right. But as a player and his output on the field and what he was able to bring to that football club was one of the pivotal reasons why they were able to get over the hump. Why they were, you know, when they went as far as they went the first time and they couldn't quite deliver it, the one knock on them was, okay, they need that extra player. You know, they need that extra creativity, that manufacturer of, 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 of play through midfield and that vision of pass, the, the speed of thought that Josie and, and Seba require. And then when they brought him, you could just see how difficult it was for opposition to line up against them because you had something else to think about. Uh, so I think he'll be significantly missed. Of course, the business side of things is very different, but on the field, I think he'll be very much missed. Uh, first of all, uh, one of the greatest foreign players to ever play in the MLS, one of the, the best creative players in, in the history of MLS. Victor Vasquez was a, a magnificent signing by Toronto FC. For me, he was player of the season in, in 2017 mm. when TFC went on to win MLS Cup. I thought he brought that missing factor that was spoken about in the, the, the two or three years before where TFC were getting closer and needed that extra piece to get the ball to Jovinko and, and Altidore to provide that touch of class when it really mattered most. And, and, and we talked about it at length and lifetime and we could go back through the games where he provided just that one little weighted pass or turn or moment of class when it absolutely mattered. Second of all, great business from TFC. I have to say, take away the emotion out of the game. This guy's on his way down. He's he's lost his best football. I hate saying it. A brilliant character and a great professional, but his knee means that he can't train two days in a row. His back was failing him. He couldn't get out in the field enough. And so the money that he was on, TFC gave him that contract, it has to be said, through loyalty from what he provided in 2017, was too much for what the output was going to be. And I believe that output will, will drop significantly as the years go on in Victor Vasquez's career. So I think it was it was brilliant from TFC to move him on to get some money back from I think it was really classy of Greg Vanny yesterday knowing the backlash they were going to receive, not to take a, a pop at Victor Vasquez, to praise him, talk about all his strengths as a person and as a football player, and to almost accept the fact that it was going to come their way, because I think it would have been easy for them to maybe throw some bullets and say, well, talk about that knee and the fact mm. that he can't train as much, and, and talk about some things about the physical side of Victor Vasquez in his game at this point. But they stayed away from that, and I commend them on that. Third of all, your recruitment has to be good. Yes. Because if you're even going to come somewhat close to replacing a guy like that, you need to have scoured South America and Europe and elsewhere to know where that type of player is. Now, you're not going to get the same guy as Victor Vasquez, even for one and a half million, in my opinion. But can you get a young, exciting player? I think it might be a wide guy, KJ. Maybe we'll get to that more in a minute as we dive into TFC. But I'm not certain it's going to be a number 10 in the same kind of mould as Victor Vasquez. But someone who can provide real quality when it matters as an asset a lot like Atlanta United have done where you can develop and improve and, 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 and sort of give this asset a platform to to maybe make some money from him in the future or make him a DP in the short term future yeah two other things for me on Vasquez before we I guess we put the final touches to his career at TFC is that one I didn't share a locker room with him but I've spoke to many people who did and I've spent enough time in his presence to know that he was a genuinely good guy. Class guy. Class guy, which is important uh, and will be a big miss, by the way, uh, in that locker room because Victor was, one, you know, I think it's clear, you, you know, we're not 
pulling back the curtain, it's obvious he wasn't a rah-rah guy, but he led by example. And those guys are very important, particularly in this dressing room. Uh, so the other thing I, I would say is, and this is not TFC's responsibility, but I think we have to remember that we're in 2019 in Canada and the game is still finding many people. And Victor Vasquez showed something to people live in Toronto and across North America that many people have never seen. And that was the vision. And that was a, a player that would make people smile and go, wow, this is like watching a Champions League, UEFA Champions League caliber player. And you get that with Seb, but it doesn't get talked enough about sometimes. But it was that wow factor. It wasn't always there, but it was that, pass that no one else could see that I would be down there on the sidelines and I would see the opposition coach or even Greg Van and his team go look at each other and go never you can't teach that stuff no. you know and that has to be talked about because they are still entertainers yeah. and that's why people when people pay a lot of money to go watch this team and that was one of the reasons why because of that and that improvisation that you don't know what you're going to see and that's why you were drawn to high level sports yeah a wonderful player one of the best five or ten players I ever watched in my life, KJ. Mm. I think when you see a guy sort of so above the level in terms of how he sees things, how he moves, the vision of pass, the way to pass, every part of his game, it's you, you sort of stand back, don't you? And you're, you're a little bit in awe, your eyes open up. And I put Victor in that category. I remember a guy called Lubo Maravcic came to uh, Celtic way back in the, the, the late 90s and it was the same kind of thing. Two-footed, could do just about everything and, and I had the pleasure of watching him when I was a, a young lad back in Scotland and Victor was that to MLS. He was that to a city in Toronto FC and uh, I think his legacy will be there forever. I don't like seeing good people leave this city no. I don't like seeing good people leave the football club we lost a great one in Benoit Chirou just recently who was starting his coaching career at Toronto FC I believe he should have been you know Bill Manning should have been hanging on to his leg as he was going to the airport to not allow him to leave to go back home because we can't allow people like that to, to, to leave Canada and mm. to go back home or try something elsewhere and maybe make a home in the Middle East we want them to stay here because we need their experience and what they bring to help develop our academy and our first team and indeed soccer in general in the, Canada. The football industry that Victor Montagliari yes. was talking about last week on our show. Find a place for him somewhere. So in that regard, I'm extremely sad. I'm, I'm sad for the, the country of Canada. I'm sad for uh, the, the city of Toronto, but I can understand Victor still you know, feeling he has some football left wanting that substantial payday that's going to come in Qatar. Let's be honest, he, he was underpaid in Toronto. He's going to get overpaid now in Qatar. He'll be all and right. He, des for, he deserves he'll it. He'll be doing all right for himself. He's not living in a caravan, lads. No, and he deserves it. But uh, I, I think from a purely football point of view, it was brilliant business from TFC. Um, earlier this week, uh, Christian made uh, made a little bit of headlines with our, our dear friends Josie Altador <laughs> and Sebastian Javinko. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, go to tsn.ca and, uh, and give it a, a watch. Um, there's going to be a lot of news this year about their contracts and, and sort of the situation. They've both stated they want to be here. Um, is this going to be a story all year long? And how is this going to get end? Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think it will be a story all year long uh, because from what I know and from what I'm hearing, they're not close at the moment. And if this drags on into the season – it's um, it's going to be a story that the media, quite rightly, are going to follow. Uh, they're going to follow the bouncing ball and wherever it lands, they're going to go after it. And people would say, why would you do that? Well, at the end of the day, there's the fans out there that want to know. They want to know what's going on here. Uh, so 
look, there's so many layers we can get into in this, and this is a TFC pod, so and we've got the de- the time to do it. So let's get into it, Stevie, in terms of the depth of what we should talk about here. If we were running the club and GM and assistant GM, <laughs> we, you know, we, we you and I often have these discussions anyway about yeah. what we would do with these th- these players. I think it's clear right now that what the facts we know. Let's go through the facts before we present the rest of the the case. They both want to stay. Greg Vanny publicly has said he wants them to stay. Now, it's one thing to wanting this all to happen. Then it comes down to what is the value? What are the value that those players see and their representatives see going forward of what they should be? And what do the clubs see going forward? Um, but I do think it's important to note that Greg Vanny, as the spokesman of the club, has said in some regard that he wants them to stay. So it's not as if, like, thanks for everything, guys. We're going to run down your contracts and then going to go. So there is somewhere there for a wiggle room. Yeah, I don't think Greg Vanny can publicly say that. So I, I think he's been a little bit coy and a little right. bit smart. Um, the output that Sebastian and Josie have given TFC means that Greg Vanny essentially has to say that. They've been brilliant players for TFC. They're going to be remembered forever and ever for what they've, they've given to the football club, what they've brought in terms of trophies. Um, so I, it doesn't surprise me that he's playing that card it's clear that the football club, on the other hand, are unsure about whether they want these two or three guys to, to stay beyond their contracts. And the reason for that, first and foremost, is money. They get paid incredible sums of money. Uh, they get paid so much money that I think it's hard for TFC to make profit from the football and the winning and, and the revenue that comes through through T, uh, TFC and MLS. So... I think that all comes in. I think this is a business decision rather than an emotional decision. Uh, I'm not certain that it's possible for the three of them to say. I know for a fact they can't stay on the money that they're on. Right. So it's a question of are these guys willing to maybe come down a little bit? And I'm thinking more of, of Sebastian and Michael in that regard just because of the age that they're at to stay at the club maybe for a bit more term years on, on the contract. Uh, Josie less so because he's a bit more of a prime age Um, and do they really want them to be there or do they want to move in another direction I think it's fair to say that Greg Vanny if you really asked him honestly does he want to play two forwards I think Mm. he would say no Yeah, but you can't possibly leave Josie Altador or Sebastian Javinko on the the bench that would be madness so Greg Vanny with his his quality of coaching and, and, and adjusting his tactics has found a way to bring success through playing the two of them in the field. But it's not really what he wants to see. So when he's been gifted the opportunity to maybe lose one of them and change a style, does he take that? Or does he feel the weight of peer pressure and and, and fan power by everyone seeming like they want the two guys to stay by, again, compromising and finding a formation and a way of playing and contracts for both of them, so they're going to see past this year of 2019. Yeah, I, I like you, think that he would prefer to have more flexibility tactically. I think it's important for us to note that we have had long discussions with Greg and he has never actually come out and told me that he would prefer to have, or you, that he would prefer to have only one of these and another playmaker or something. Never once. Never, never once. even came close Not to Not close it. to that. But I think it's also important to note that if you remove one of them and you do say, okay, keep one of them, 
is that player good enough without the other one? Because we are talking, we can't talk about Michael here because he hasn't publicly said anything. We're going to get to him in a second, but let's just talk about these two as a case study right now because they are a duo. And what they've accomplished together over the last four years is, as you said, quite remarkable. They're almost, I think, 140 goals combined. And they clearly get on and they clearly make each other better, which is a team sport. It is not an individual sport. So I think we have to, as evaluators of talent, think about them as a package, do we not? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing we have to think about is this. Let's think about 2020. So you've got one player in Jovinko who will be going into his... Th- I always think about the age they played during that year. So he'll be 33 in the 2020 season and Josie will be 30. So they're not 36, 37. So then if you are not willing to pay them what they believe are worth... How do you replace these players? Okay, now everything we hear about acquisitions and recruitment, and we speak to a lot of people across MLS, one of the major things is, can they adapt to MLS? Well, these guys, you don't know if you're going to pay them again. You don't need to worry about them adapting to MLS. And you don't need to worry about paying transfer fees. Now, I'm just presenting the case because if you are wanting to compete with Atlanta United by the way, who are spending $15 million on transfer fees. And okay, people would say you're going to make a lot of money on Almiron. That's not yeah. efficient. And you, they're going to spend extortion. You're just giving five years to Joseph, Joseph Martinez. Do you, one, believe in your recruitment policy that you can go out there and get those players? And two, are you willing to go there and spend that amount of money? Because if not, then we're talking a whole new different discussion because maybe you're not aiming to be the best in MLS. Do you know where I'm going here? Yeah, I in do. Terms of that? So they've accomplished what they've accomplished over the last four years and they've taken TFC to a, a level that, that was beyond fantasy when they first arrived. They accomplished as much as they could ever accomplish. And you have them now there wanting to play for you. And I understand that people would say, okay, they've got to take a significant drop of money. But their case would be, I would imagine, hang on, what about the the replacement cost? And I think that's worth talking about. It certainly is. And um, it depends what your kind of model at the football club yeah. is, doesn't it? And I think that we've never really heard Bill Manning or anyone at TFC come out and talk in the way that, that we hear Atlanta United talk about, you know, sort of developing these young, exciting South Americans, Almiron's a tremendous example, but maybe we could take Barco, and I know he's still extremely young, but mm-hmm. what did they spend $10 million mm-hmm. on him? And in the end, the last 10, 12 games, he wasn't getting selected, you right. know? So you can get it wrong as well, you know? And, and I'm not immediately putting Barco saying, you know, he's a flop because he's still got time, and I still believe he has enough talent. But the the, the way that Atlanta United set up their football club is to bring in these, these, these young guys, spend a few million on them, give them some significant money, but then look to, to move them on. And I don't think TFC think the same, but I, I think TFC are trying to restructure the wage bill and, and, and the shape of that and the fact that it's far and away above anyone else within MLS and create a system that's a little bit more um, streamlined or um, cost-effective to still try and achieve success. Right. Not an easy thing to do. Not easy at all. Not an easy thing to do. Recruitment has to be perfect. And that's hard for anybody, you know. So to me, unless you're really plowing money into that recruitment, that access to South America, to Europe um, and beyond, and unless you're really not just putting the money into your academy, but finding ways to help fix the system, to help develop 
and find the right competition for these young lads to then have them ready to play at that level and to give that output to make yourselves contenders for MLS Cup, i.e. the quality of a Martinez or an Almiron mm-hmm. or a Barco, yep. then you've got a big problem. You need to spend the eight million a year, the five millions a year, the six millions to keep the guys at the club. So it's fascinating to me, KJ. Me too. It really is. And and I think it's still a lot of people probably on the fence within that, you know, front office of the football club, what direction they should go if these guys are worth it and they feel like that's the way forward or if it's a time for a change and they're ready with an X system and a, a different way of thinking. It's fascinating to me for that reason, but also because it's uncharted territory for both sides. Because you've got these players who are getting paid a lot of money and you maybe argue they wouldn't get paid that money anywhere else. But you've got a club who didn't have to pay a lot of money in transfers fees for either of them. So they were kind of gifted them and obviously we're giving them wonderful uh, a living in terms of their, their wages. But as I said before, the the replacement cost, what does that come down to? And the other thing is, is the reputation of the club right now, I believe, hasn't been universally affected by the 2018 disaster. But we could be having another conversation in six months where if 2019 is duplicate for 2018, suddenly they're back to where they were when the bloody big deal bus fell off the highway. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And suddenly you're going, hang on a minute we might need to make a decision here that are these the guys for the reasons why we're fine or do we need to keep them to send our message going forward? Because if they go, things don't go well in 2019 and then you get your recruitment wrong again. By the way, 2016 and 17 are an aberration for a failing football club. Yeah. Right now, they're considered a giant amongst MLS for the amount of money they're putting out there and for what they accomplished in 2017 as a record-setting year. And they should be. And that rep- But that reputation in, is... Is precarious yeah. because of the history and they've got to protect it, have they not? And that's why this is very important. This is a, a very important moment in the club's history, what, what they decide to do here. Yeah, I agree with you. Protect it or transition though, I would say, yeah. you know, and that's what I think that we said the word fascinating that makes it so fascinating because I think from above, uh, and I'm talking about the, the parent company and Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, I think they won't more of a sustained period of success without an input of $23, $24 million a year. I think they want a, a, yeah, a system, a way of doing something. So to me, the transition is more likely than than just opening the checkbook again and, mm. and writing three checks to, to three tremendous servants and three guys that have achieved great success. But... Maybe the Vasquez thing's a little indication of the changing mindset of TFC because they've, they've shown no emotion with Victor Vasquez. They've said, okay, thank you. A sensational year and a good second year and you're off, you're gone. Is it going to be the same case with the three guys um, or is it going to be one or two of the guys? Off you go. Thanks for your output. We're moving in another direction or is it going to be panic stations and we can't afford to lose these guys. They've gave us too much. Let's sign three more checks. One last question. One last headline before uh, we move to uh, the interview with Greg Vanny. Um, we sort of mentioned it in the last one, uh, but Michael Bradley is that third contract that's up for grabs. Obviously he wasn't at, um, at training this week. He's with the U S team, but do you expect the story to be similar with Michael or sort of a little bit less because he's a little less vocal in sort of con- contracts and such? Mm, probably the latter. Yeah. I would think the latter I would go with because 
um, as much as I think Michael would want to stay as well, uh, just as much as the other two. I just think they might be dealt with a little bit differently. I also think there's an option on Michael and Seba's deals for 2020, a club option. Um, so the Josie thing is precarious more than theirs because I think I, I, I think I'm right in thinking that they have club options for 2020 that the club can keep going if they want. So it's less as an emergency. The Josie thing involves Seba because they, like I said before, it, they're just they just they're just seen as a package. While Michael's a little bit more isolated, I think in people the way that they view them. Yeah, I agree, KJ. I think Michael's a different character. He's, he's the captain of the football club, he has a different way of conducting himself, maybe a little bit less emotional than, than a Seba and a, a little bit uh, more more experienced than Josie, but in a different position. Josie's 29, 30-year-old, you know, he's right at that prime. He's he's due another... I thought he handled it with class, though, Josie. He was class, yeah. he was absolutely class. Your, your interview with Seba and, and Josie was, was brilliant and it, it goes to show the kind of relationship that you have with them because you got more out of them than, than anybody else. And then we saw him turn up the next day to the scrum and he was very measured, hmm. very controlled. I thought he was brilliant. Uh, I thought he said the right things I agree. about the very, fans very and about the city mature, yeah. and a football club. And, and I think all of that's absolutely genuine, but that was smart to say these things, playing on the emotional side, but, but saying it with, with such control and, and calmness, I thought was really great from Josie. With Michael, I, don't, I just don't see him leaving TFC. I see him staying. I don't know if he's going to get paid the same money that he's on, but I just don't see... TFC losing Michael Bradley. I guess that depends on how much football he feels he has left in him, who's willing to pay him what, and really going to deeply test the love that he has for this football club in this city because to me, he's a guy that could be at TFC for a long time. He could be go, go beyond his playing career into a coaching role, event, eventually into whatever role that he wants, head coach or, or general manager. I, I see him is thinking long-term like that, but that's going to be tested as we head towards the end of 2019. Yeah, I agree. And I want to pick up on something you said earlier. I could probably say this a little bit more than you because you're part of this. The football club and the fabric of the football club, they have to protect the alumni of the club better. And they have to they have to establish some kind of ability and connection consistently with the alumni of the club, and that, 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 that and, and I'm talking about current players as well, and how you treat those players. And this is something that I think has gone on um, at a, a level of sports management to another level over the last ten or fifteen years. There's a guy called Steve War, who was the Australian captain uh, in cricket, who brought this to the fore. And now, when you see sportsmen all over the world, cricket is a leader in this. But they've all got a little number on their shirt. And Steve Waugh started that. And it's in rugby now, it's in cricket, it's in a number of sports around the world. And that number belongs to that club and that, that player. And it's not the number on the back, it's the number on the front. And that is forever associated with them. And that's what's something that I think TFC needs to start. And that is the first player that played for the club is number one. And you go on and go on and you become that number. So I don't know what this number is, but Stephen Colwell could be number 126 and forever will be known as 126 on everything that he wears if he represents that club. And I think that's a really important thing that this MLS as a whole needs to get better at. They're still in this growth period right now, evolving and going forward. But as you evolve and you move up and you grow, you have to remember where you came from. And I think that's important going forward. And that's why Michael... Stephen Caldwell, Josie Also, Sebastian Javinko, Victor Vasquez, Bren Washeru, consistently, Dwayne Di Rosario, many others. I think it's very important that we look at them as consistent members of Toronto FC and how you finish those relationships and how you continue to sustain them. (laughs) 
All right, delighted to be joined by uh, Toronto FC boss Greg Vanny. Welcome Thank to the podcast. Um, it's been a longer off season for you. And before we get to some of the plays and some of the bigger news, I think a lot of our listeners would love to hear about your trip to Europe. We've talked about it a little bit off the microphone, but you yeah. said to me when I met with you in Orlando, how you had a chance to go and, and see some, I won't say them, I want you to talk about them, some really big teams and how much you sure. enjoyed that. And also I'm sure your mind was consistently ticking and learning as well. Yeah, it was, uh, I had two trips to Europe. The first one, I went over to France, uh, had the opportunity to watch uh, Lyon and Man City play. Uh, after that, we met with uh, some some officials, club officials uh, at Lyon, just to talk. I, one of the sporting directors there was a former teammate of mine, so we were able to get uh, around the club a little bit and talk. Uh, they're obviously a great club at, at getting results, but also in producing talent that, that moves on to big clubs. So it's always nice to, to hear a little bit about what they're doing. Uh, watching a game like Man City and, and Lyon was fantastic. Um, just, again, it was... Uh, Man City, the way they play, just it's unique and and it's always interesting to be at a little bit higher level and in the stadium where you can see all the pieces moving and you know in this sort of symphony on the field. Mm -hmm. And on the day, I have to say that Lyon was every bit as good and should have probably got the result. They had an excellent midfield, two young players in midfield who were fantastic on the day, and I thought really you know set the tone. Um, but it was great to watch them. Then we went over trained to, to Paris and watched PSG Liverpool, which was, uh, you know, PSG was playing for their, their season in Champions mm -hmm. League. And so it was just a different level of intensity and a different level of um, not taking risk, you know, because it's, especially in a game when your season is on the line or your Champions League season is on the line. So it was, you know, an entertaining game, a little bit different than the game we saw the night before. But um, again, interesting to watch two teams uh go at it and obviously saying Neymar live is is always a, a special yeah. moment um and that was it and then the second trip I took with my kids which was amazing and uh they haven't been out of the country and we took them over to Liverpool Man City and what went to two Man City games and uh then we went to Liverpool Man United Great. and again is I saw now Man City three times this offseason so um it's a it's a, again I think it's a special thing to watch how they go about their business and in, in a Pep Guardiola team and seeing them live and and again a symphony of movement without the ball and and keeping possession just a, it's a, just a unique thing and one of the things that City do better than most is is wide play isn't it and yeah. you and I have had a chat this offseason about sure. wide play and I'm sure our listeners will be fascinated to see where you see the game now, Greg, at the highest level and where that translates in MLS and where even it translates to how you want to see some of the identity of your club in 2019. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the game always has always been and will forever be a sort of an action reaction. And, and with Man City, they are a team that wants to have the ball. That's their style. That's that's their uh what they do and so obviously they want to they use wide play as an important aspect of that they try to stretch out the back line as much as they can they have great wingers uh who are dangerous and are always threatening the space behind with and without the ball and their ability to open up the width of the field high gives the gaps in the pockets for their two attacking midfielders that are essentially functioning and that's these roles in between lines um you know what's interesting in watching them is how because they're playing against teams that love to play them on the counter is how they protect themselves against the transition. Uh, and that's something I was paying close attention to how they really don't stretch themselves out in the, in the setup phase, how they actually stay pretty narrow 
in the buildup, but they keep the width ahead of the game. Uh, and that's in order to, you know, control the game channel and protect themselves as, as they are in possession. And if a transition takes place, they're able to control that space between the ball and the goal. So it's really, uh, it's really interesting. And every, again, everybody chooses their style of play and their, and, and their way of, of doing things. And, and it's how you connect the dots when you have the ball, when you don't have the ball that, um, that's interesting to watch, you know, these great coaches, um, set up their teams you know, obviously Liverpool another team that's flying right now and uh, they do it a little bit differently you can tell uh, you know they set up to play in transitions and how they go about their business and how they defend and um, it was interesting to be able to watch them a couple times mm-hmm. over this break and it's just, it's a little bit different approach and I think it you know it, it matters who you are and your identity as a coach but it also matters the types of players that you that you bring in and how that will all fit together and I'm sure it helps you immensely because you obviously it's different league, but you are a coach of a club where a lot of opponents will sit quite deep yeah. against you. Um, which brings me to my next point and, and what City and Liverpool do well, but particularly with, with City and Stones and Laporte is that they challenge their centre-backs. It's now a natural consequence that they want to step into that space as well. Yep. And whether you've gone in the past to play with three or two, I think that's what you see your club wanting to continue to do. And the addition of, I believe, Lauren Simon so, will certainly help with that. Maybe just talk a little bit about that and how you want to see the identity of your club with those centre-backs. Yeah, I think... Uh Obviously, if if we're going to be on the ball a fair amount or if teams are going to be sitting off of us, there's a couple of things. How we start attacks and where transitions take place are important. And having center backs that can play the initial pass or even Laurent and, and some of the other guys are challenging them to develop their ability to hit the ball from one side to the opposite side to keep uh, teams opened up, which then can open up some entry passes. Um, you know, the ability for our center backs to step into the next line to in that initial two versus one or three versus two to actually step into the next line and create a new numerical advantage in the next line is, I think, really important if you have the ball. Uh, otherwise, if you, you remain in these even number situations, eventually you're in you know a tough situation where you could lose the ball in a bad place. So for us, having those guys and having a guy like Laurent, whose passing range is phenomenal, but also his comfort level to to drive into the next line and create a, a numerical advantage, um, it bodes well for us. I think again, a part of that is he's he in his moments can be an aggressive defender. He can play op- defend in the in the open mm-hmm. uh, space. Um, but I think a big thing for us, and as we look at last year and moving into this year, is you know we got hurt a lot in transitions. We lost balls in bad places. We were too opened up behind the ball. Uh, we've got to defend better in the process of having the ball. Uh, and I think you have to be a, very aware of how you're de- you're defending behind the ball as the ball is still in your possession. And so we've got to get we've got to get tighter in some of those things. In addition to trying to be a little bit more you know purposeful and at moments when we have the ball, but defensively, we've got to shut down teams better than we did last year. There's no two ways about that. The attacking side, we know we have the ability, we have the players. It's, it's making sure we keep things locked down on the other end. On, on that note, Greg, and obviously you've had many hours upon days and, and months now to think about what you're going to do with the season, a far longer off season than you would have liked, yeah, even though it's sure. presented the challenges that we've just you know, presented the opportunities that we just discussed. What about the midfield in terms of if you have two you know, high caliber strikers in Josie and Seba to play centrally? Sure. Um, I guess you are a little bit um, hesitant. You, you, you kind of locked into place only certain shapes, aren't you? But yeah. have you thought about adding another deeper midfielder there, whether it be one of your own or something to play alongside Michael in certain aspects? Because last year, very often he was the, the, the lone central midfielder there. Yeah, you know, a part of that last year was... Uh, Again, I think we lost a little bit of the balance of our midfield. Um, we were getting too many numbers high too soon, and and 
that wasn't necessarily it's something that we talked about over the course of last year i think it's something that we have to do something structurally different this year um but if we can keep two midfielders slightly deeper which opens up more space actually for seba and josie to move uh to to be able to find pockets and gaps i think sometimes in this past season we were getting too many players too high too soon we were actually closing off the spaces that we wanted Mm -hmm. to get into that then in turn leads to transitions and then you don't have numbers in between where the ball transitions and trying to protect your own goal so again there's a lot of these these things that are both structural but also just um tactically and how we move and and where we want guys set up that that will we will adjust going into this year um and it's interesting because we we when you look back at 2017 some of those things happened sort of organically in the way we went about things and last year again i think maybe as a product of us chasing the season a lot um it became we were a little bit indisciplined in how high we were getting too soon and we were too goal oriented and and we were conceding goals on the other side again it's it's there's not one magic bullet, but there's a few different things that we have to do differently for sure. And I suppose, look, whenever you lose a player of the caliber of Victor Vazquez, it's a blow. Um, But I suppose that is one area that maybe presents an opportunity because Victor was one of those players that would obviously be very high. Does it give you now an opportunity maybe to find a different kind of profile of a player, maybe a player that still has Victor's uh, attacking mindset and his vision, but maybe somebody that can come back a little bit deeper in certain aspects? Yeah, I think it poses uh, a couple opportunities. Um, you know, we, we will need to find somebody in midfield. Um, that can be uh, somebody who's a little higher and has a little bit more of the profile of Victor. The option, the other option is to sit somebody a little deeper. That will put Oso in a little bit higher position. I mean, last year he played quite frequently in a high position. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very drawn and showed good timing last year of getting in the box, and, and his work rate ahead of the ball has been very good. But we need to make sure that we have that structure behind whoever that player is. And then the second piece of it is I think we need to look at width. We need to have somebody who can give us width on the outside, who is capable of getting into the depth, who can stretch the the, the back line and really make them worry about the space behind them, but can also beat some people on the outside, which makes them worry about their width of the back four. Uh, and a lot of that is to open up the space in the middle for Seba and Josie and, and those guys. But we've got to we've got to force teams to open themselves up a little bit more. And, and we've got to be able to threaten the width in a better way. And when we can do that and prove that we can do that, then I think spaces up the central part of the field will open up and more space for Seba will, will start to sh- you know show itself. So that's that's the answer for Greg Vanny, the coach. We've got to know you very well over the last few years. Stephen and I are here talking to you now, and you've been very generous with your time before and after games with us. And I, I li- I'd like to our listeners to get a little bit of glimpse in that in terms of what's Greg Vanny like, the man when you get that notification? Because as a coach, yeah. I'm pretty sure Victor Vasquez was a great player to have for you. And sure. we, we've already discussed that this week to, you know, what he provided over the two years. Is it one of those where you put your phone down and just put your, he- your head in your hand a little bit for a little bit? Do you get a little bit angry, stressed? Because I mean, you've been in the game a long time, Greg. It's ups and downs, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is. And, and you know, as I've said before, Victor is as good a guy as he is a player. And I just enjoyed having Victor around, picking his brain about things, his experiences. Uh, I think his experiences were important for other players. Uh, he's always you know, level-headed uh, about the game. He'll do anything that you ask him to do. Uh, it, and he's a phenomenal player. You know, All of us have sat back at some point, and I'm assuming you guys as well, when you're watching the game, and he picks out a pass that I don't know if any of us saw and he somehow puts the ball in between a space that doesn't even look like there's a space and and uh it's just it was 
incredible to have a guy of that ability in this league. Look, he was a steal for us. Let's let's be honest. I was going to ask steal. you about he, that. Yeah, he's a DP player yeah. on a non-DP contract, and and that's reality. Uh, and uh, as he got in the league and he and he got into um, MLS and started, he he knows that he knows that he's he was a steal. But he also recognizes he's 32 and he only has so many years left. Uh, and, and those are all earning years for all of us that were players. You earn as much as you can while you're playing and doing what you want. So these are, these are important final years for him. And, uh, so this is an important opportunity for his family from, I understand from a player perspective and a personal perspective, I understand, uh, as, as the coach of the team, I was, I was sad. I gotta be Mm -hmm. honest because I I will miss him as a a person to have around our locker room and for sure we'll miss him as a player. And, And I don't think, and I think it's fair to say we won't replace Victor with Victor given the resources that we've opened up with Victor, he's, he's better than that. And we've got to find the way to make our team better in different ways than saying, we're going to go find Victor Vasquez because it isn't going to happen. And that's mm. the reality. Frankly, and, and Stephen and I talked about it earlier on the show, we would say that if we were running a club and a 32 year old with the profile of Victor, with his injuries, despite the brilliance that came to us and said, I'm going to get more money here. I think we would have allowed him to go as well. Yeah. But was there ever a discussion here internally where someone said, well, hold on, should we give him the money? Or was that even part of any discussion? Or was it simply, no, this is the right thing to do by us and him? No, it was, I mean, from the start, I think it was the right thing. Look, Again, we all around here know that um, Victor has given us everything that we've asked for in the salary spot and, yeah. and the way the league is structured. We couldn't give him another dime. He's maxed out in the, you know, in what we call the TAM world. So we couldn't give him, you know, more money. It, it was, it was just a matter of, you understand the player, you respect what the player has done for you, that he's been a, you know, a good guy, a loyal soldier, and, and he's done it probably at a fraction of what he could have done it anywhere else in the world. And so you have to respect that on some level. And I think that's part of, what makes this club a, a good club is we understand those kinds of things and um, we could have said no I don't think it benefits anybody if we do I think it's it's the right thing to do by him and it's the right thing to do by you know our team and moving forward a couple more and you've been really generous with your time the, the Josie and Seba story seemingly won't go away um, you see them as players you're you're their coach I, I understand that mm-hmm. um, but you have said this week publicly on camera that you would like them to stay beyond their contract like is, is that a no-brainer for a coach like you to, to have players at that of that ability to want to stay yeah i think you know when you're when you're dealing with guys of uh high quality and and you you know what you these guys are good people they're good guys in our locker room you know what it's like to work with them you know how they fit in your team and anytime you they move on then you've got to find new pieces you've got to find new personalities you've got to re organize your team so uh you know these guys fit with what we're doing and they've helped us to be successful and they still have that capability um in their legs to keep us successful so um you know uh, they're good guys and and they work uh, they work for the group and i think that's important those are all uh, those are all important facets as you add players into this league everybody knows and you know steven's been around the league that there's no shoe in when you go and bring guys in especially on dp contracts there's no guarantees you, you there's a lot of factors that go into that and uh, we've got good guys and uh, they've been good for this franchise and so if we if it again but it has to make sense on a mm-hmm. number of levels not just me as the coach right i can say my my piece but it's uh, it's mm-hmm. things that happen on a number of levels that have to work out Last one for you. Obviously, the Champions League is now at the fore. We're getting closer to, to the CONCACAF Champions yep. League campaign starting. I can say this. I don't expect you to say it, but I've said this to you privately. Um, the 
press conference between uh, Bill Manning, yourself, and Tim Bezbachenko at the end of the year when they were talking about how to go about things differently this year than what they did last year. I found that quite uncomfortable because what I've said to you personally is that I thought what you did last year for the Champions League and and I'll say this to anybody was was exactly the way you should have done it, mm-hmm. you know. And and they were almost sent because of what the consequences were after that in terms of how it didn't go the way that you wanted the league. It almost became the reason for that, and maybe we need to address that things differently. And I understand you have made some things differently. You don't want to go to Mexico now for preseason, sure. but. Um, I guess my point being is you can't have too many regrets, can you, Greg? After getting all the way to the CONCACAF Champions League final, winning the games that you did, going through three giants of Mexican football, sure. getting to the penalty shootout, outplaying the teams. Uh, I just felt that it was a little bit of a, of a Monday morning quarterback scenario at that point that I, I felt a little bit uncomfortable with. Yeah, I think, at least from my perspective, it is we will approach Champions League differently because we learned from our experience last year. So as an example, our preseason is different than it was last right. year. I felt like last year we did a fantastic job maybe of preparing ourselves for the short run, which was Champions League. Uh, and the process, we didn't create, um, we didn't get our guys prepared for the long run, which is the durability it takes to go through a, cha- uh, a whole season, not just a Champions League, which is a couple months, but it's a, the grueling summers of, of Major League Soccer. And, and so we... You know, we endured a lot of injuries in that initial phase. And part of that, in my opinion, is the preseason that we had prepared us for Champions League, but it didn't get our guys ready for what a real full season looks like. And so we're traveling less. We're going to train more. We're going to get our the, the games in that we need to get games in. We know what Champions League is like now. We know what it's like to play in, in Mexico. We know, you know, there's the possibility we could play Toluca at altitude. We know what that feels like. We can take those experiences and put them in our back pocket. We don't need to go have those again in preseason. We can now really just focus on um, our developing our you know our game model and developing our bodies and making sure that we are ready for the grind that is you know ten months, eleven months, not just for three months. And I think that was part of our learning process. We will still try to win this tournament. That's not gonna uh, that's not gonna change. We want to be the first team that wins it. We're gonna put everything we can towards that. I think we just have to learn from our experience and uh, and make sure that we try to do it um, better. You know, better. I, I, one penalty kick better, I guess. But yeah. uh, but in the end, better by by keeping guys healthy and durable through that process. Well, good luck with it. And again, thank, thank you. you for joining us on the show. You've been always gracious with your time. Thank Enjoy you. the sunshine in LA. Yeah, and uh, we'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks, okay. Greg. That was Greg Vanny, a very insightful chat, a man we know very well, but it's, I thought it was a different kind of um, interview for some of the listeners to listen to. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that, KG. It was it was great to listen to Greg kind of open up a little bit. Normally we, we see him quick and, and sharp after games, but we know he has a, you know, a bright tactical mind. He thinks about the game. He loves football as much does, as anybody yes. I've ever met in my life. He just loves talking about all forms of the game. I have kids the same age as Greg and he's just as passionate about the, the U12s as he is about the first team. I can promise you that. And he really integrates himself into TFC. So it was great to hear him talk in depth about the kind of things and, and get into some of his uh, his passions and, and wants for TFC in the future. Good stuff. Okay, let's go to our last segment. Hashtag Ask AFP. Back to show. Uh, just for everyone, uh, 
make sure to use the hashtag AskAFP uh, through Twitter, uh, at AFootballPod, uh, and then we'll hopefully uh, be able to answer all your questions. Um, this is TFC-specific, but if you have Whitecaps or Impact questions, we will have them coming up in the next couple weeks. We so promise it's coming up yes, soon. Yes. We can't wait for we that. can't wait for those. Uh, Steven asks, can Jonathan Osorio keep up his form from last season uh, after his sports hernia injury? Uh, and can he replace Victor Vasquez in the attacking midfield role? I think it has to be said first that the Stephen is not me, KJ. No, so. it's, a, it's a Stephen with a PH. <laughs> and as the famous joke goes, that doesn't mean Pfeven. Um Stephen with a PH. No, it's not you. You're right. Uh, look, I had a good chat with Jonathan this week, and I think there's a different kind of confidence about him that we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months. I think he would be okay with us saying that he's, there's clearly a different level of maturity about him as a person and as a player. I think it would be a lot to ask him personally to replace Victor Vasquez in that attacking role. Maybe it's something that he can do a little bit more in certain areas if they whoever they bring in isn't available in those areas. I still think he, he has got a very good eye for that pass. Um, but it, it, look, it wasn't... Um, a coincidence that last year suddenly his goals went up. It was about reading the game and the ability to slow it down a little bit and doing it at the highest level in the CONCACAF Champions League, which gave him tremendous confidence. Yeah, and I think Victor Vasquez helped a lot with that, KJ, as did a number of other people. But the most important person in this process that developed Jonathan Azorio's game is Jonathan Azorio. He put in the work. I think he was a young lad who came into TFC who was extremely passionate about football, loves the game, was desperate to be a success. And I think sometimes that little bit of anxiety, playing in a, a quality a side that didn't have the same quality as the, you know, last seasons or the seasons before as TFC started to grow and develop, I think meant that he was he was playing with that little bit of anxiety and then eventually everything clicked at the same time and he found a maturity and he found a calmness and he started to realise what he was all about uh, and, and what his strengths and weaknesses are and I agree with you, he slowed the game down and I think that came from that um, that inner belief in, in himself and I thought he had a brilliant season, he was wonderful, he, he, he timed his runs, he played the game the Jonathan Azorio way, he wasn't quite as... Um, as, as, as um, slow on the ball I think, think at times he was he was thinking too much about the game yeah. and he was taking too many touches and he was allowing you know the picture that he had seen to go away and I thought that last season when he saw the picture and he saw the pass he played it really quickly he had a positivity to his game where he stepped into things rather than maybe that little pirouette turn and coming back out and playing it a bit too simple and his game went from strength to strength Difficult to ask him to be Vasquez. I don't think he's that kind of player, but he's Jonathan Azorio. He has great quality and he's going to be a leader of this team moving forward. Under the Kosh asks, will TFC see out the January window without an offer uh, from Europe for Alex Bono? Yeah, they will. Um, but I do think that um, obviously Alex is on the radar and there's a lot of people who are keeping an eye on him in, in Europe. Zach Steffen's got his move, which is an enormous move and a great accomplishment yeah. to him. Um, you know, and Alex Bono would have told you, and I think a few evaluators within the league have told me over the last few months that it wasn't that long ago where they saw them very close. Yeah. And obviously Alex would admit that he didn't have this, this season that he wanted last season, particularly in the second half. And he'll take that as motivation. What we do know about Alex is that he'll certainly evaluate. I, I like Alex because he evaluates his abilities and his own mistakes as honest as anybody. And that can only help him. This is the, the biggest season in Alex Bono's career. Um, 
you're right in saying that Stefan and Bono were neck and neck the start of last year. Bono had a brilliant 2017. Stefan was very, very good also. And they were at that point, who's going to be the next US goalkeeper? Who's going to take it forward? Stefan had a great year. Alex didn't. That happens in football. Now, it's up to Alex Bono to um, come back stronger, show that he's he, he, he has more to his game, he has more belief, he has more uh, ability to take parts of his game that he's good at onto the next level. I think he needs to do that as well, KJ, and to let everyone know that, that, that 2018 was a blip in his career. And I, th- I think it will make or break him. We'll, we'll see a goalkeeper that is really on the radar of European clubs or we'll see a guy who's always going to be in MLS and no disrespect to that and I think that Alex Bono is a keeper that's already established himself as a an out-and-out MLS goalkeeper but can he really fight Stefan close? Stefan's not going to get a lot of games at Manchester City. No. Is he going to go on loan? Who he'll knows? Have to, have to, Let's yeah. see what happens. Yeah. But if I'm Alex Bono, I'm looking at that now, KJ, and going, okay, this is an opportunity for me, especially in my own backyard, to show my new head coach and to people all around me that I'm capable of, of wearing that shirt for yeah. the national team and to obviously be establishing myself completely in at TFC, winning more trophies for TFC. So I, I think this is a pivotal year in his career. The character that we know he is, we know that he'll take that on and he'll, he'll really relish that opportunity. Uh, David DeCola asks, uh, with the departure of Vasquez, is there any way TFC can bring in Atiba Hutchison and can he fit in any way, in any which way? Mm. Well, obviously they're gonna, they've got allocation money to spend. Um, do I think they'll give it to someone like Atiba Hutchinson? I'll be extremely surprised if they do and at the end of the day, you know, he goes on to ask, doesn't he, in the question, could he, could Bradley and Atiba sit deeper in midfield together? I do think that, and we talked about that with Greg Vanny, I do think that CFC are going to have to establish that yeah. a little bit more of that double pivot this season. As as Greg said, far too often, there was far too many players beyond the ball when they would lose them in transition. Um, I just think that the money will be spent more of an attacking player, as much as I'd love to see Atiba back in Canada. I'd love to see Atiba back to KG, but I don't see him coming back to Canadian football or, or to MLS and uh, I certainly don't see him at TFC so I'd be absolutely shocked if, if that happened I think Atiba will probably finish his career in Europe and uh, last question to finish up uh, Ask AFP uh, William Jameson asks does, Vas- does Vasquez's departure open the door for uh, Lucas Hansen's return or does the club go in another direction uh, with the increased pay- payroll flexibility? Possibly both. I mean, I think Hansen was on the radar um, even before the Vasquez news broke. And what we know this week is that the Vasquez stuff broke pretty quickly. It wasn't something that they knew too much about, even though they did admit that Bezbachenko in the final days of his ten- tenure was aware of some kind of offer. But um, Greg Vanny has, has said that he hasn't, he hasn't ruled out Lucas Hansen. He seems like he, he, he wants him back. I'll, I'll say this, I saw very little from him last season that would warrant him coming back. That's my own personal evaluation of him. I'm not quite sure what his strengths are, whether he's an out, a, a player that can get outside a little bit. It's clearly need to bring more width and get that playmaker out wide a little bit more to just to stretch the field and make it a little bit more predictable. Um, but I didn't see enough from him to, to, to really say that I would want him back if I was a TFC fan. That's my honest opinion. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't bring him back if I was Toronto FC. Um, I think that he, he was decent in his spell for TFC. He had, he had a nice start and then he kind of lost his way a little bit and then maybe a, a little bit of a decent end. But I don't think there's enough there in his game to really see value for TFC, KJ. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I just think that he maybe blocks a pathway some, for some other guys that you have at your football club. I don't know if he's a winger or if he's a forward. and I, I don't see any 
real outstanding quality in his play. So if it was me and I was TFC, I'd go in a different direction and I'd try and bring in someone with real quality who can, can change that 11. Good stuff. Well, that's it for today's show. Shawnee, thanks for the questions and thanks everybody else for sending them in. A reminder, hashtag AskAFP. That is the end of our second episode, pal. So it's been a good one again. And a reminder, in about eight days' time, we'll be back. I think around the Tuesday, the 29th of January, there'll be a big Premier League schedule that day. We'll be evaluating on that. Some of the FA Cup games, some of the other stories as well will continue to hit the headlines. So thanks for Stevie. Thank you, Christian. Thank you to Sean. Thanks to Dylan and Clay. Thanks, guys. See you soon. 